Speak the charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult, esotericism, and the paranormal. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have a surprisingly special guest. I'm joined by Nicholas Chapel. His name is probably familiar to a lot of you if you've been reading my blog for a while, because about four years ago, I published a couple of articles about the Kabbalion and how the Kabbalion is kind of a load of horseshit. And the main article that I cited uh, talking about this was an article called The Kabbalion's New Clothes, an early 20th century text's dubious association with Hermeticism. Uh, This was published in the 2013 Vernal Equinox issue of the Journal of the Western Mystery Tradition, and it was written by Nicholas Chappell. So anyhow, when Mr. Chappell, when Nick reached out to me, he introduced himself uh, as the person who'd written the article, but that wasn't really what he wanted to talk about, so we probably won't. And Nick is a Minneapolis-based magician who's been practicing magic for more than 20 years. Uh, Way back in the old days when he was in college, he got a major in religious studies and a minor in philosophy, and he was going to enter into academia, but then he left academia for the world of IT and ultimately became a professional hacker on a cybersecurity red team, which means we're probably going to talk about computers and we're probably going to talk about some other stuff, but we hopefully will talk very little about the Kabalian. Nick Chappell, welcome to the Arnimancy podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. It's uh, it's great to be on. I've been a fan for quite some time. That's very flattering to hear. I have to say the fact that I never considered reaching out to you I mean, first of all, I never, I didn't even know where you existed or if you existed or if you were some super old guy or I didn't know anything about you from your article. And I'm not sure why I never tried to find you and reach out to have you on the podcast. I think probably because I did not want to have a podcast episode about the Kabbalion. <laughs> you know, I can empathize with that. But, you know, the fact that you have uh, so much other amazing stuff for us to talk about, including some like really surprising. I mean, I'm not sure if I want to like spoil the surprise or make people wait, but I guess you're supposed to hook listeners in. We're going to talk about uh, the make Ma- them wait for it. No, I think we should tell them right now, just in case we talk about some other stuff. But at some point during this podcast, we are going to talk about Johannes Trithemius. We're going to talk about cryptography and secrets and all of that stuff that I love. And it turns out you also love. I'm just I'm, I'm kind of thrilled about it. It's it's very it's a very exciting topic for me. Yeah, I've been excited for this conversation. So when you first contacted me, you had a question uh, that you wanted to answer on the podcast, or at least discuss in the podcast, which is, how is evocation like a malware loader? And I think that this is a really interesting question. It definitely speaks to or enters into that area that is, uh, I think, really interesting and perhaps not touched on enough right now, which is the intersection between sort of like computer science and magic. But before we get into it, since we don't, since we are, we have no guarantee that anybody on this uh who's listening, knows anything about computers. Can you tell us what a malware loader is? Yeah, we're, we're diving into the deep end of the pool right here. So um, the way that malware works frequently is... Uh, Wait, hold on, what's to... malware? <laughs> oh, okay, we're starting We got to start at yeah. 101 level. We have to be like, 
Remember, this is not a this is not a computer nerd podcast, so we need to give them we need to give everybody sort of an overview of these things first. So malware is uh, essentially any software that is designed to perform adverse effects, effects that the user would not intend or desire to perform. Uh, so that can be anything from there is malware which can uh, mine Bitcoin uh, for cash on your system. There is malware that can uh, engage in what's called click fraud, which is basically just a way of making money from uh, online advertising. Uh, and anything up to and including uh, an intruder actually getting into your computer and having interactive, you know, hands-on keyboard access to your computer remotely. So it's kind of like computer viruses. Every computer exactly. virus is malware, but maybe not every malware is a computer virus. Well, so originally viruses were were really just programs that were intended to replicate themselves and just be happy and free and propagate. And so then in uh, mm. kind of around the 90s, it ended up becoming uh, big business. And so uh, there became a lot of organized crime around uh, malware and uh, malware campaigns, and so that's actually what most of it is used for. It's it's not these cool little programs that just replicate themselves. Instead, it's just boring greed. Do you think a lot of that was sort of inspired by the uh, unexpected success of the uh, internet worm, the send mail worm in the late 80s? That you, the Morris worm. The Morris worm, yeah, that ended up like accidentally crashing like a huge percentage of computers attached to the internet at the time. I think that that brought viruses to the forefront of people's attention, but really, I think uh, in order to in order to get the root of it, you have to look at the motivation, and the motivation is financial. So when when in the '90s businesses discovered, hey, there's this internet thing that we can advertise on and have a digital presence on, they uh, they followed the money, and so did malware authors and uh, organized crime rings. So a malware loader specifically, and this is where we can start to get into the, the parallel with evocation. Uh, malware generally, or at least frequently, I should say, is, is divided into two stages. And the way that antivirus works, for example, on your computer, it's better at inspecting things that are on the disk than it is things that travel over the network. And so you will often have a very small program that does nothing more than reaching out to a second source on the internet, pulling down more code, and then running that on your computer. So in order to evade antivirus and to uh, evade some forms of reverse engineering, that's what, uh, that's what malware frequently does. It has a loader and then a payload. So the way that evocation is like a magical loader, let's define evocation as well too, because okay. invocation and evocation are frequently sticky terms. When I talk about evocation, I'm talking about conjuring a spirit to presence and to communication. Uh, I, I frequently use invocation as kind of reaching out and inviting present evocation as, hey, let's talk. So what about like uh, drawing spirits into crystals? Would that be invocation or evocation? It involves a lot of invocations, but I would I would consider that evocation personally. But ultimately, okay. the taxonomy is only useful insofar as you can actually understand what uh, what your differentiation is and have a conversation about it. So, 
that's that's why I'm defining my terms here. Um, <laughs> okay. But one thing that that I consistently hear from practitioners of magical evocation, and this has been my own experience as well, is that once you make that initial contact, you have all of the ceremony, you have all of the the intention and the kind of protracted invocations to perform the evocation. But once you make that contact, you then have an easier time communicating with those spirits. You know, in the in the Solomonic tradition, you have the binding with oaths, uh, and you know you have have kind of parallel things in other methods of working. But ultimately, the idea is that once you make this initial contact, it gets easier. And similarly, uh, I see the way that that works as a malware loader is that. You know, you are you are sending this kind of command out into the world, into the universe, and uh, hoping that you get your callback, hoping that you get your kind of return from from that system. And uh, once you do that, then uh, in in the hacker world, at least, you can do what's called establishing persistence, where if you are on that computer, you can essentially tell the computer, "Hey, every time you start up, run this program to communicate with me." So it ends up being a really interesting kind of parallel to me in that you know you have this this very elaborate setup to either detonate uh, malware on somebody else's computer through you know phishing campaigns or, or other kind of social engineering or tricking somebody somehow into downloading this program and running it on their computer. And then once you get that access, you have a much easier time of things. And then similarly, once you perform that evocation with all of the, the ceremony and, and all of the process and procedure involved, then it becomes easier. Then you, then you move from the procedural stage to more of a relationship stage. Right, which is how a lot of that Solomonic evocation works. Like you make a deal with the spirit where you're kind of like, now that I've summoned you once, uh, I can summon you again just by like saying your name. Exactly. Interesting. I guess they are similar. This really makes me think of this other podcast. Um, have you heard of uh, Familiar Shapes? I don't think that one rings a bell. It's a uh, podcast documentary that came out last year that sort of explores parallels between the idea of witches' familiars and botnets. Interesting. I'm going to have to check that one out. It's really worth checking out. I uh, I don't remember the name of the um, of the woman who created it yet, but or at the moment, but it's really fascinating. And uh, I actually just finished listening to it. I thought it was brilliant. When you talk about like parallels between evocation and malware loader, that malware loaders that does sort of like hearken to your your idea of like parallels between hacking and magic in general, where magic is almost like a way of hacking reality or our experience of reality that's something i've been giving a lot of thought to lately and and i initially you know i mean it's a superficially appealing comparison and i i kind of just decided to go see how far the the rabbit hole goes down Mm -hmm. and it ends up holding up surprisingly well i think uh now first let me let me define hacking here because hacking like broadly construed is it's inventing it's tinkering it's it's being a, a maker or a researcher it's uh it's about that hands-on kind of experimental science and not science in the sense of you know our our kind of contemporary 21st century definition of science but as in scientia as in understanding how things work and why so um, to me I find that 
this idea of magic as reality hacking works best for me through that offensive frame. You know, I, I work I work as as a as a hacker. So I uh, what I do in my job is I emulate uh, the the uh, tactics, techniques, and and procedures that uh, real world threat actors use to compromise computers. And then I serve mostly as a sparring partner for our incident responders, for our blue team to to counterbalance the red team. So we we essentially hack uh, our own systems before uh, the bad guys do in order to uh, test our responders and to uh, to educate them better. Mm-hmm. Um, but from an offensive lens, I, I find it works really well because if you if you're talking about hacking in that that you know we'll call it the stereotypical sense, uh, I find that magic and hacking are both ultimately pursuits where you're trying to approach this system that seems to have a consistent set of rules and seems to work and behave in a consistent way and then to break those rules or find a means of getting around them in ways that serve to your advantage or that that help you to understand better what's going on with that system Um, yeah i would agree with that i i guess i i would kind of say it's not really the same as breaking the rules because it's kind of you know the the system is set up in terms of a computer like the you know the system is set up the program is in place it's just whoever designed the program didn't necessarily uh take into account all the various ways it could be used right or you know you have programmers that include easter eggs in their programs for for people to stumble upon and be delighted by uh <laughs> if they enter some obscure key combination or what have you but yeah i think um when when you're talking about um, when you're talking about how a system works with rules, I and mean, one of the one of the challenges to that is is assuming that magic and the world are inherently mechanistic in some way. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to take some of that as just philosophically axiomatic. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's difficult to it's difficult to figure out how to approach anything unless you can uh, kind of have some bedrock to stand on. And uh, ultimately, I think that the the universe seems to work in consistent ways. And so perhaps it's not a matter of breaking those rules as much as it's discovering what they are. But I think the uh, I think the commonality is that in either case, it's what you expect the rules to be. Because oftentimes when it comes to security vulnerabilities, it's not that there is a technical uh, flaw or a technical exploit. It's that somebody has misconfigured something or just not set something up the right way or has chosen an easy password. It's a, it's almost an oversight. Uh, and so, right. uh, yeah. And so I think that when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about magic as hacking reality, you're looking for the common assumptions that you make going through this world. And especially I think in the contemporary world where we've, where we in the industrialized West particularly have really internalized this view of scientific materialism just by virtue of growing up in our culture. Uh, and trying to challenge that, to poke at those assumptions and test them and see where they fail. Uh, and to me, magic is one of the most interesting ways of doing that. 
Yeah, it makes me think of the fact that uh, our interface with reality or with the materialist part of reality is frequently based on on a set of assumptions that, um, you know, upon closer and closer examination end up not being true. You know, a lot of even the most basic laws of physics are um, counterintuitive or sort of like uh, defy things that, that we expected, you know, um, like the, the laws of gravitation, for instance, uh, you know, for a long time up until, you know, Galileo performed his experiments is uh, people assumed that like a small light thing fell slower than a big heavy thing. You know, nobody bothered to measure it. They just sort of knew it was true. It made sense. That totally makes sense. Um, but it's not the case, right? You know, um, but we have these we have these assumptions about the physical world, about the materialist existence that are constantly being challenged and constantly being broken down and sort of uh, dissected over and over and over again. Um, and I guess I'm not always like a huge fan of like looking at magic as a way to... Uh, address or confront or change or whatever the laws of physics or the material world but it it happens you know we use it to we use it for all sorts of like thaumaturgical effects yeah and i think uh where that that taxonomy of theurgy versus thaumaturgy uh where where thaumaturgy is magic that's intended to achieve a desired effect in the world and theurgy is magic that's intended to draw one closer connect a person to the gods or to the divin or to divinity um i think for for at least the idea of magic as as hacking um i don't know that it matters actually whether you're talking about theurgy or thaumaturgy and in this case i would almost go so far as to say that um to some extent, the distinction between the two is illusory. Uh, I, hmm. I tend to think personally that uh, theurgy and thaumaturgy, at least, at least in our present occult culture, uh, work to serve a largely political distinction as often as they serve a technical one. That is, yeah, I guess. I mean, I think that's a that's a an interesting approach to it and I kind of agree with you but I I have to think about that for a second before I'm going to agree with you 100%. Uh, I do think that there are certain things certain acts you can do that are 100% thaumaturgical or 100% theurgic right I think that there the, there's a there's a spectrum of where, where they sort of sit on opposite ends but but you're right I think a lot of the stuff we do um kind of involves both you know planetary magic is a great example like anytime you're interacting with planetary spirits you are kind of like reaching up in a sort of theurgical way and you know in sort of like adopting those energies or calling on those particular spirits you are also in a sense like going up to meet them so there's thaumaturgy and theurgy kind of in the same operation there Right, and certainly in the case of alchemy, I know that the the purity of the operator was core to the efficacy of that work in mm -hmm. the uh, in the way that it was approached. And we see that in um, we see that in all sorts of other Renaissance traditions too. We see that in Kabbalah. We see it in uh, the Arbitel, for instance. We see it in um, I think even the Key of Solomon has stuff about that, doesn't it? About remaining pure or spiritually pure in order to proceed. Um, 
And it's yeah, def- there's a, a heavy purity component in in the grimoire tradition. Right, right. I mean, you definitely see it in like the Sworn Book of Honorius or or the Abramelin ritual. That's for sure. Hmm. That definitely gives. Uh, that's definitely like an interesting thing to think about. How does that? Uh, but uh, I guess we got there because we were talking about sort of like hacking and magic being related to each other, and I guess. In some sense, it kind of like speaks to the idea that like magic isn't necessarily supernatural. It's sort of part of the natural world. It's um, it's operating within rules or within bounds that have like already been there, or it's sort of like pulling on the strings of um, creation that have that that already existed, and we're just sort of like discovering new ones or discovering new ways to like use them or look at them, maybe. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about magic is that there's always, I, I think, some tension implied in it. Uh, you have this tension between, and if if you are reach, if you're a magician that is attempting to accomplish a goal using magic, then generally speaking, it is a goal that you feel you don't have the agency to accomplish on your own in, like, through mundane means. And so there's this tension between reaching out in order to exert that control and that agency and to to make the the world what to make the world what you want it to be rather than what it is or what you fear it is. Uh, you have this tension between the known and the unknown. You have the tension between that world we exist in and that we we move through and uh, the world that we want for ourselves, and then certainly the tension between the finite and the infinite. And uh, when you juxtapose the finite and the infinite, I think a lot of those those binaries, those paradoxes, really uh, find the end of their usefulness in in some ways. They kind of collapse into each other and are are one, even though they're separate. And so you have this this really interesting liminality, which, uh, of course, to me, that liminality is part and parcel of of what magic is. Uh, it's it's existing in this kind of in between space, uh, in this this state of tension, and then uh, and then hopefully achieving some sort of cathartic release of that tension. I kind of still I I kind of want to bring that back around to hacking too, because even with hacking, like the software exists the instructions are there when you do something to a computer that might be considered hacking there is sort of you know i mean it's a fine line between like are you using the features that exist on purpose or using the features that don't and uh how far up the chain of um you know computer existence you have to go before you find like where those instructions come from you know i mean at some sense, you're looking at like the 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 binary code of of an executable that, you know, it's and it's not like a program has any awareness of what it's supposed to be doing. But if you can imagine like a base system call that's sort of like, oh, I do this, you send me one thing, I spit out another. It doesn't necessarily care if it's a legitimate system call or a non-legitimate system call. It might not be able to tell, nor have any faculty that allows it to tell. Uh. I think I just lost myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> but... <laughs> certainly, I think from a, a human perspective, that's that is exactly what a lot of of hacking is about in terms of of that offensive use. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when uh, uh, when you have 
So you can, you can certainly use plenty of tools, and we do use plenty of tools, because if something works, then why reinvent the wheel? Uh, but at the same time, uh, so those, those people who only rely on tools that other people have written without understanding how or why they work, in, in the hacker world, we call them script kiddies. Right. Uh, they can run scripts, but you know, they don't actually understand what hacking is. Uh, and so hacking is is really digging down into that understanding, not just what you can do, but how and why that works. And so, a lot of uh, a lot of what goes into uh, the research component of hacking certainly is, uh, you know, you find those tools that do something similar to what you want, or that that use a technique that you want to leverage. Dig down into it, reverse engineer it, start seeing how it works and and why it works in the way that it does and then uh, you can do whatever you want with that you can leverage those techniques uh, independently of the program that was written you can recode the program in a different language you can adapt those methods or or customize that program to your needs but until you understand how it works you're extremely limited in what you can do because you're dependent upon the functionality that the authors included in the program so basically, um, you're saying that all beginning magicians are just script kitties in reality. Script kitties uh, of reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. I think. But beginning magicians, beginning hackers. I think everybody starts somewhere, and uh, you know, there there is. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, ceremonial magicians, and I say this as as someone whose primary background is ceremonial magic, I think ceremonialists are particularly uh, prone to fall into the trap of uh, magical uh, script kiddiedom uh, in that, you know, we, we rely heavily on tools and techniques and methods that uh, vastly precede our own, our own time. And that uh, depending on, on whether we fall into uh, the the Joseph Lasuski crowd uh, may be taken more <laughs> literally <laughs> uh, by some than others. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, hold on. <coughs> Oof. I have to make a note of that now that I coughed. <laughs> <laughs> Editing. Fix it in post. Uh, <laughs> So um, I used to be kind of involved in uh, the hacker community a long, long time ago. I was involved in um, sort of open source anonymity and cryptography software. Um, so a big part of my background is is around sort of like cryptography and uh, cryptology and um, and that sort of stuff. And uh, I see that, like right now, you're wearing a DefCon T-shirt. Um, I am. <laughs> I actually have a. I have some of my old DefCon badges, like hanging on the wall behind me somewhere. But uh, so do I. <laughs> that's funny. I, I wonder if we ever met in person back then. Well, DefCon 25 was my first. Oh so God, probably I think mine not. was like DefCon 10. Although I, I did have a DEFCON 9 shirt in high school, so it took me until 25 to actually go. Oh, geez, you're just you're you're. You're like way younger than I am. <laughs> okay, well, uh, the reason I was bringing that up is because I was going to try to do like a really elegant segue into the world of cryptography because 
Um, one of the reasons that I'm just really excited to have you on to talk about all of this stuff is because of Johannes Trithemius. He, um, I mean, he's kind of like the Neil Young of modern ceremonial magic, right? He, he was born in the late 15th century. He, um, he was doing weird stuff before like the Northern European Renaissance ever kicked off. He taught Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. He taught Paracelsus. He, uh, he wrote grimoires and had magical thingamajigs. And he was also kind of like the, the, the father of modern steganography, which is the, uh, the practice of secret writing. Um, and for me, this is really fascinating because, uh, Agrippa, you know, one of his one of his students, probably his most famous student. I think every every ceremonial magician and maybe even like non-ceremonial magician, every Wiccan, every modern European style occultist out there has heard of Agrippa. You know, his his books are kind of a staple, I think. Um and Agrippa does things in his books where he uses, for instance, some of uh Trithemius's uh, magical alphabets and he introduces new magical alphabets and he has things that he does uh, or things that he teaches that are uh, almost like precursors to modern cryptographic techniques and there's all these like fascinating things that were going on in there and um, I guess uh, I just want to start by asking you like what drew you to Trithemius? One of the things that actually drew me to Trithemius I I so I had uh, I had worked with kind of the drawing spirits into crystals, uh, loosely adapted uh, framework before, uh, but not directly from Trithemius, from secondary sources like uh, Praterash and Chassan and and the like. Um, so my exposure to Trithemius historically had not been particularly great, but what fascinated me, I, I knew that he wrote the Steganographia, and and I had learned a little bit about that uh, a while back, but. Uh, when I was reading about steganography and learning about it in more of an information security capacity uh, in that world, it shocked me how little of the material, when it talked about the historical roots of steganography, actually ever mentioned Trithemius. Uh, and that bothered me immensely. And so uh, <laughs> I, I ended up uh, developing a conference presentation, uh, largely spurred because of this, that, uh, that I hope to deliver in the spring. But uh, but I, I was first drawn to it by trying to understand uh, better what the origin of steganography was. Uh, from a technical standpoint, I love that stuff. Uh, I, I love crypto in the sense of less mathy modern cryptography and more um, that information hiding. If I can, if I can, if I can show something to somebody and they have this this reaction of what the hell am I looking at? Then I feel like I've done my job. I love creating those puzzles for people. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I want to I want to interject. This is a this is a stupid interjection, and I'm sorry that I have to make it. But both of us are probably going to say crypto uh, numerous times during this episode. Uh, for those of you listening, we are not talking about cryptocurrency. Crypto means cryptography. Yes, or cryptology, perhaps, uh, depending, you know, and, and the difference is cryptography is the art of uh, writing secrets and cryptology is sort of the study of secrets in general. Right. Uh, it's a it's a hair to be split, but, <laughs> but it's not Bitcoin. <laughs> no, most definitely not. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's pretty fascinating. I guess, uh, you know, the thing that's really fascinating also about Trithemius's work with steganography was that, uh, so first of all, he published uh, Steganographia. I think he wrote it in 1499 and it was published in 1516. Um, so it's a it's a it's an old book, you know. It's a hundred. It's over five hundred years old at this point, and um, it's disguised as this this grimoire filled with these uh, invocations made of barbarous words. And the point of of these invocations is to like summon angels and demons that can carry secret messages to people far away, who, if they also know the same invocations, can can reveal the messages. And it took a long, long, long time for anybody to figure out what Trithemius was doing. It turns out in these invocations had all of these um, encoded messages. I think like some of them were in Latin, but some of them were in like Middle High German, where he kind of was like, here's how you hide a message in text. You take the second letter of every third word and you string it together and there you go. That's your secret. But he would hide them in the middle of all of these barbarous names. So you couldn't really figure out what was going on unless you already knew the secret. Um, and in fact, the third book of Steganographia wasn't even decoded until like 96, I think, 1996. So right. it's just, it's fascinating that he was able to do all of this, but that people then kind of ignored him. It very much is. And uh, and and one of the things that really bothers me as well in reading about uh, Trithemius from, certainly from non-esoteric sources, is that... Uh, Frequently, there's this dichotomy made between, uh, you know, people will say that uh, the the steganographia appeared to be a work of of angelic magic, but really it was a work of cryptography. And uh, I think that that is a false binary. I, oh, I think agreed. It, yeah. it was most definitely both. I think you can I think you can see more evidence of that false binary when you look at Agrippa's work. Um, so in in cryptology, you have kind of like two different classes of functions. One is a two-way function, which is how encryption works, right? Where you have like a um, a function and a secret, and you can use that to uh, encrypt messages and decrypt messages. So you and I could send things back and forth securely. In fact, we're talking over Zoom right now, which is an encrypted connection. So we're already using a two-way function right now. Um, and the other function is a one-way function where you put information in and you can't retrieve it again because it goes through this function that sort of like reduces or eliminates um, some of the required data. Um, but nowadays we have something, we have cryptographic one-way functions that allow you to do like digital signatures and stuff. So Agrippa has all of these functions in the three books of occult philosophy. He never calls them functions. He just sort of spells them out. He's like, do this and this and this and this, and you'll get like an angelic name or you'll get a sigil or you'll get something of this nature. Um, and they're one-way functions. They're basically, uh, they're basically hashes. So they're not, uh, they're, they're actually like mathematically a little bit more sophisticated than Trithemius's steganography, but you never really get the impression that Agrippa is using them in the same way that we use hashes now, but you do see they are almost purely magic for him. One of the fascinating things too, in that respect is if you look at uh, alphabet of desire style sigils uh, in the chaos magic tradition, it's very much the same way you have, mm -hmm. you have your petition or your desire written out and then you collapse that in a way that is not, reversible right it's a total one-way function yeah it's a it's a magical hash i guess that that's yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> 
um, but but that's uh, I think that it is definitely it's very disappointing that we don't have more of an overlap between like um, uh, people who study the history of mathematics mathematics and people who study the history of Western esotericism, you know, because we have folks like John Dee, who was a mathematician and a wizard. We have Trithemius, who was a cryptologer and a wizard. We have uh, Alkindi, who was a cryptologer and a wizard. Like we have all of these people sort of with this huge overlap between that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, heck, you could even look at Newton, who, who was, uh, who was way into like, he didn't. I don't know if he actually did cryptology or cryptography, but he definitely did tons and tons of weird alchemical shit on the side. While he was also busy being, you know, the world's leading physicist. Um, and we we do have this like dichotomy. We want it to be. It's either magic or science, but it can't be both. But I think in reality, it usually is both. I think so. I mean, I I do hesitate sometimes when when I consider the extent to which magic can be considered a science in in more contemporary uses of the term. Uh, you know, we don't get necessarily consistent or repeatable results from magic. We don't mm-hmm. necessarily get the expected results. In fact, I would say that the vast majority of the magical experiences that I've had serve more to break down my assumptions about how things actually work or about the nature of the world than they do to reinforce them. So Yeah. Uh, that's a I think that's um that's a valuable point, actually. Because I think you're you're right in that they don't necessarily follow the same methodology and magic doesn't really adhere to the um to the scientific method at all not necessarily certainly in terms of being able to make empirical observations it's uh it's very subtle and it is is very personal and so uh it is an extremely subjective kind of science uh however you know one of the I don't know. I think one of the one of the largest things that I find as a challenge to the idea of uh, of of there being this parallel that is is super convincing between magic and hacking uh, is that you have to ask what are the what are the implications of that? How much does any of that idea that this uh, works consistently hold when you're working with angels or gods or other spirits that presumably have their own agency and personalities and agendas. Uh, and you see some of that certainly like in the grimoire tradition, you, you, you always talk to the boss and Mm -hmm. then, uh, work your way down. Um, but at the same time, then you come back to the more fundamental questions of how do you validate that those tools and techniques are, are working as you expect and to what extent can we retain reliable repeatable results do you find i guess i i've also found that like sometimes tools and techniques um their efficacy changes over time maybe as my view or practice changes or as my level of experience changes but there will be things that i try or tools that i work on that like won't work one year but will the next um (laughs) Or maybe even the other way around, like, you know, techniques that you abandon. Right. And and one of the things that I, I have to ask myself as well is when you're talking about magic, 
to what extent is the are the conditions of efficacy external in terms of what you do you know the the techniques that you that you use the words that you speak and to what extent is it subjective dependent on more how you feel and how you connect to that that moment and that intention mm-hmm. and that's something that i think can only really the answer can only really come if there is an answer to come through exploration uh, although that is one one way in which I think um, there is a really good parallel between uh, between magic and hacking, because it is, like, to me, first and foremost, an experimental science. So, you know, we have access today to lots of information on what worked for people in the past, uh, and and what works for people in the present. Uh, but ultimately, you can read all you want about magic, and it doesn't make you a magician any more than reading about hacking makes you a hacker. It's not just a domain of knowledge. It's the skill of putting knowledge into action in ways that achieve the the result that you're going for. So that necessity for experimentation and that experiential learning is really unavoidable. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I think we really have to cultivate this sense of, of playfulness as well, uh, which is something that I, I love about hacker culture is it, it, it's so playful and, and mischievous and just sort of uh, uh, there's a lot of wry humor and a lot of in-jokes. And uh, people do this stuff not, not because... Uh, necessarily, they're they're motivated by trying to accomplish a particular goal, so much as they just want to understand how something works, which of course is a particular goal all its own. <laughs> yeah, and I think actually, hopefully, a lot of ceremonial magicians are on that same path. I, I would I, hope. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> if if you aren't out there, you're on notice. Yeah, I mean, come on, get your act together. <laughs> My good friend Jay Swafford, creator of the Picket Tricks Deccans cards, has designed a tarot deck, the Moonlit Hermit Tarot. The Kickstarter to fund the production of this deck is now live, and you can help by going to arnamancy.com slash moonlit. The Moonlit Hermit Tarot is a unique deck born of the culmination of years of study, meditation, and labor. Over the course of two years, Jay finished 78 pieces of collage art, which reflect his impressions and interpretations of each of the cards. The cards have been designed, the little white book has been written, and the proofs have come back. It is now time to get the decks printed for wider distribution. This is a tarot deck designed to be used. The Moonlit Hermit Tarot is appropriate for beginners and experts and was created for practical use. Jay styled this deck after the classic Tarot de Marseille, with the majors, the court cards, and most of the aces, sometimes looking very similar, yet sometimes radically different to the cards that inspired them. The minor arcana cards are lightly illustrated. I personally have had the opportunity to look at a proof for this deck and examine its artwork, and I am very excited for Jay's Kickstarter campaign to succeed. In fact, it was my honor to contribute to this campaign, and I hope that you will take the time to check out his campaign page and decide it's worth supporting also. You can find it by going to arnamancy.com moonlit. By the way, Jay did not pay for this promo. I just really believe in his work and want to see this deck become a reality. You should totally see it for yourself. arnamancy.com moonlit. And hurry, the campaign needs to be fully funded by the morning of June 23rd. And at the time of my recording of this, it's almost there. Thank you. Now back to the show. 
Okay, so we were just talking about magic and hacking, the nature of uh, experiments, and how even though hopefully most ceremonial magicians out there are doing experiments with their magic, these experiments aren't really the same as experiments that follow the scientific method because it's really difficult to do like a control group. It's really difficult to have exactly repeatable um, procedures. And also, you know, honestly, like a lot of magic is really subjective. Very much so. Um, And there's also like this whole concept, especially with the more thaumaturgical sort of stuff that magic is sort of like something that operates along the path of least resistance. It might do something along the lines of like help you out or change, um, uh, you know, change your luck. What's the word? Probabilities. It might like alter probabilities slightly, or it might make things like slightly more likely to happen. Or, you know, for instance, like I've used magic to uh, like ensure income when I'm doing freelancing. But if I'm doing a good job as a freelancer, is that me or my magic or both? And there's no way for me to tell. Right. And that's that I think is precisely the difficulty in treating magic as something empirical uh and you know one of those one of those things that um i think is really problematic uh in in magic in general uh and it's just sort of unavoidable is this i'll call it imposter syndrome it's uh it's this sense that uh you know you you do your magic and something happens and it happens the way that you intend or maybe not the way that you intend but at least uh it it ticks the boxes, right? And uh, uh, and yet, I think we're conditioned in our culture to deeply doubt those experiences. Hmm. So one of the things that's fascinating to me is is that tension between having magical experiences and deeply doubting uh, at times the the veracity or the validity of those experiences, which also goes to the other question of how can you validate or verify that the experiences or the results that you're getting are the ones that you're intending to receive. Yeah, I do have some thoughts about that. I feel like one of the things that we, um, one of the, one of the philosophies that we need to work harder on embracing in the magical world or in the magical community or even as magicians is that the reality that we're living in, whatever the material world is, it's not the real it's not the most real, right? Like most magic sort of, especially Western magic has sort of a neoplatonic bent to it, which means that the world of ideas and the world of forms is somehow more real than, than what we exist in. You know, the, the world of perception is all a lie. Or, or at least only a manifestation of prior, uh, prior, creation that exists in in the mind of deity or in the archetypal realms or what have you yeah yeah i think that might be the same thing that i said perhaps i think think we just use different words i think so i I think we're agreeing on that but i think that it also changes how we can look at um magic affecting the real world like sometimes things are imaginal you know it could be that your you know, love spell just changes the way that you act or helps you 
um, you know, improve your own standing or improve yourself in a way that like makes you more lovable. Or it could be that your money spell uh, encourages you to act better or act more jobby or whatever, or, you know, look more carefully at stock market stuff. So, so the magic itself could be something that is not doing something like explicitly physical. It might be working on your perception of yourself or your interaction with kind of like the ideals and, uh, yeah, like archetypes that sort of like shape the world around you. Yeah. And I don't think that, I don't think that's the totality of magic, but I think that a lot of magic inherently operates on that level. Um, it's it does tend to be deeply personal and a lot of it is internal and subjective and i think there there is a uh magic has a sense of irony it can be a very (laughs) cruel sense of irony at times uh it can be a hilarious sense of irony at others but it definitely has a sense of irony and so uh you know if we if we want to continue with the the magic as hacking frame uh i think the irony is that we try to we try to program the universe. We try to control the universe. And uh, in the end, are we really just reprogramming or deprogramming ourselves? Hacker, hack thyself. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's the question, if, if that's the case, then is that a significant distinction to begin with? I don't think it is a significant distinction to begin with. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we learn through theurgy or, you know, every theurgical operation is meant to bring us closer to unity or to kind of like erase the lines between us and, and Godhead, right? Like we're, we're here to, we're here to make that sort of leap of understanding. So when we, when we do magic, when we, you know, hack reality or whatever, we are hacking ourselves because we are, we're entwined in this. We're the, you know, we're the creator caught in its own creation. Mm. Not to, I think I might have just quoted the Invisibles. <laughs> <laughs> well, if so, it's a good quote. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, but I think that that also kind of like talks to the difficulty of drawing a line between thaumaturgy and thaumaturgy and theurgy, like we were talking about earlier. Like every thaumaturgical act is in some sense theurgical because it involves changing our soul's representation in the world soul, perhaps. Well, it's about connecting us, I think, in some way, connecting us to the ground of being, connecting us to divinity. Um, and, And ultimately, of course, Particularly if you're talking the Hermetic tradition, Hermes is the god of communication. So mm-hmm. uh, entering into that communion, fostering that communication, uh, and then you know, hopefully your your malware loader has detonated and you have that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's when when everything goes well, <laughs> and you've got the the yeah universal malware loaded into your subconsciousness. <laughs> got, got a shell on the universe, right? <laughs> Uh, that is a weird, it is a weird thought. This is, uh, possibly the most philosophical I've gotten with someone else about magic since the pandemic started. (laughs) Um, so then uh, if we take this back to Trithemius, 
for a second because one of the things that I, I really enjoyed that you had mentioned about him or that you had in the slides that you shared with me is this uh, concept of the, the Priscus sapientia. Can you talk about that a little bit? So the, the doctrine or the idea of Priscus sapientia is that, that essentially it, it is the wisdom or the knowledge that was uh, kind of prior to everything else. Uh, you know, if you, if you consider the the distant past as this Edenic sort of paradise uh, that the Prisca Sapientia derives from, then you know, we are we are inheritors of of that in very dim and uh, and kind of obfuscated ways. Um, so, uh, generally speaking, I think the the uh, the most interesting uh, the most interesting place where I see this certainly is in the doctrine of signatures, uh, the doctrine of signs, where um, you have, uh, uh, especially I think in medieval uh, medicine and Renaissance medicine, you had uh, these principles being used. So, for example, uh, walnuts were thought to be good for uh, neurological conditions because a walnut looks like a brain. And so oh, you right, have right. these, yeah. So you have you have this uh, this mindset, this worldview where everything, everything in the natural world, everything in the supernatural world, it's all a cipher that is uh, planted there to to provide some sort of of information to serve as a a, a a cryptography in the form of symbolism in a way but it it all has meaning there waiting to be unraveled it was um and it it, it ties also into like um uh correspondences like the planetary correspondences uh, Agrippa talks about this a lot in his three books where book one is all about sort of like natural magic. So it does talk about, I don't know if the walnuts and brains things is in there specifically, but there's all these things about like, you know, onions are related to the moon because they look like the moon. Um, you know, uh, all flowers are related to the sun because they look up and they follow the sun all day long. Um, and then when you get into book two, you have these sort of like, you know, oh, also Jupiter is associated with number four because, you know, of all of its fourness. <laughs> um so that's uh but but there is sort of this idea of a of a hidden language that's sort of like built into creation itself. And I think that's inbuilt into the hermetic tradition stretching back to, to late antiquity. You, know, you mm -hmm. had the 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 technical hermetica that were all alchemical, and then you had the corpus hermeticum, which uh you you see explicitly, of course, the the as famous as above so below quote comes from the Emerald Tablet, the Tablet Smaragdina. But in the Corpus Hermeticum, you have the same thoughts and sentiments echoed that the material world is a reflection of the world above, and uh, this idea of the human as this mesocosm almost that exists between the macro and the microcosm. Right. Uh, and so you have built into that system this principle of analogy that uh, uh, that I think informs a lot of the grammar of magic that we use in the modern day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And how do you think that that uh, ties back into um, Trithemius' use of ciphers? Then. So I, I I find it difficult actually to to uh, have a a direct correlation back to Trithemius, but uh, his use of magical ciphers, um, and it's certainly an example of that. It is an example of 
Uh, he doesn't point the way. Uh, he does not show you how to decipher anything that he's written, but it's there hiding, waiting to be found. And uh, certainly enterprising people over the years have ended up finding those messages. And uh, it makes me wonder if there aren't others waiting to be uncovered, perhaps. Oh, I love that idea. I really love that idea. Um, I I was uh, really fortunate to get one of um, Adam McLean's uh, editions of the Stegnographia. Um, it's an English translation that was, you know, like published and handbound, like, in the early 80s. So I was very, very fortunate to come across one. But in the introduction, he sort of surmises that if we could figure out how to look at all of Trithemius's work, we might find lots of additional stuff hidden in there through steganography. It would not surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me either. Um, I guess for me, I sort of think of all of these codes that, you know, both uh, Trithemius and Agrippa were using. I feel like they were sort of playing even with the concept of language. You know, language has such a fascinating and weird mythological history in Western Europe. Uh, you know, going not only, you know, like there's the idea of the the primeval language, which of course was for a long time considered to be Hebrew or something of that in nature. Um, but also like this concept that like language ended up being scattered during like the, the Tower of Babel um, situation uh, myth. Um so language itself was was almost like a block that that kept us from having true communion with each other and true communion with God. Like it was the way that that matter communicated to each other and not the way that souls talked, you know. One of the fascinating things to me about that too is considering the way in which we use those the the, the barbarous names of evocation or uh, ancient languages in magic. Uh, the the supposition i think that uh the the closer you go or the farther that you go rather in antiquity the closer you are to some kind of pristine beginning uh but absolutely the the i don't think it's a coincidence that gods of magic and language tend to be uh deeply connected uh, mm-hmm. the magical has has always been tied i think deeply to language and to what we do with language. Uh, and a lot of the way that I am thinking about magic these days really um, draws on a lot of uh, the idea of performative communication, where uh, you are not merely making like declarative statements, like making truth claims or, or what have you with what you're, you're saying, but are rather performing an action by the, the very uh, act of speech that you are making. Hmm. I like that. Um, you know, Dan Attrell has spoken in the past about sort of like magic being an intersection of um, uh, prayer and uh, performance art. Hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I would. Uh, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. Um, so how does how do you think that plays out in your own practice? This idea of performative communication. Have you have you changed the way that you do magic based on your understanding of these um, uh, based on your understanding of secrets not necessarily based on my understanding of secrets and I'll, I'll be honest I, I I don't hold a lot of value in the idea of magical secrecy I think that it can have deep potency 
but for me, uh, I I am more toward the the open source mindset rather than the keep all the secrets mindset. I want to find all of the secrets out, right? But I don't want to keep them. Yeah, uh, I guess I wasn't necessarily thinking of secrets <laughs> in that sense, but I was thinking of secrets more in the sense of um, cryptographic secrets. You know, secrets that are they're waiting to mm-hmm. be decoded, but also secrets that once you figure out the method, you can encode new things. Like, do you uh, do you consider that, for instance, when you are making your own sigils or when you are doing your own rituals or crafting your own rituals, do you think about the fact that you are going through a process of encoding? I, I definitely do when, when I'm creating my own rituals, certainly. And a lot uh, of that in kind of the research stages as well. You know, when I'm when I'm diving into research a topic, I'm trying to understand it, and I'm trying to understand how it works. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, uh, for example, like let's uh, tie, tying it into the language thing. If you're talking about Enochian magic, uh, in approaching that, uh, you know, trying to understand how does this work? How did this work initially? What are the ways that this has been adapted? And one of the things that I find fascinating is that um, you have so much, so much change, not only in the magical techniques specifically that are used over the centuries, uh, but also certainly in the names. A lot of the barbarous names of evocation are, are recognizable as names from other languages that have just been horribly corrupted. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure many of the others are as well. And yet they continue to seemingly work. And yeah. so... One of the questions that I am interested in, which is is deeply tied to this idea of magic as hacking, is if you presume that these methods are are uh, or certainly were at one time valid and efficacious, then how far can you bend those without breaking them? How how much can you get away with, in other words? I have wondered that many times. And uh, and I've been to a lot of them. You know, I mean, sometimes you have to. Absolutely. You, uh, and, you know, like spirit work, for instance, I almost never draw out a circle. Um, and I feel okay about that. You know, there's a passage in uh, Jake Stratton Kent's... Uh, I'm looking up at my shelf because I can't remember the name right now. Pandemonia, I think is the name of the book, the the his his spirit catalog book. Um, where he quotes something from an old grimoire where somebody talks about how like, oh, lots of magicians don't draw out circles, but if they don't, they imagine they have one. And I was like, well, I've got a circle. I mean, I've got a very powerful imaginary circle. I'll just use that. (laughs) Um, But that's totally like breaking a rule. It is. And yet, if it works, it works. And so this is is kind of the way that I approach, uh, that I approach magic as well as, as, it's the way that you approach a problem in hacking as well. If you if you can, you find a tool that somebody has already developed that does something similar to what you want to do. You reverse engineer it, understand what it does and how it functions. Not not in terms of the the specific process or the verbiage itself. That's more like the source code of a program, but in the way that it it creates these functional code blocks that these these. Uh, kind of collections of statements or actions that serve to do something, and mm-hmm. then looking at what those are intended to do, and uh, and trying those processes or stitching together uh, a variety of sources into the the program, if you will, that that I want to execute, rather than just relying on 
the the tools that are are developed. And of course, part of that too is is you know it's always driven by a certain degree of laziness. But then everything in technology is. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but it does bring us back around to the problem of like, how do you verify it worked? You know, with hacking, you can kind of see if something works. But in magic, it's tough. It's tough to know if what you're doing is valid or not. Um, and it's also, you know, it's just like, at some point, somebody made all of this stuff up. Absolutely. You know, we, we've, had, we've had magicians probably since we've had language. Well, and, and certainly coming coming from the Golden Dawn tradition, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people out there, and and this is uh, there there are a lot of people out there who get very very particular about their sources, about the the antiquity of them, and it's like, okay, come on, guys, this this stuff was new. Like less than 150 years ago. Why? <laughs> why are you? Why are you acting as though this is some holy writ from on high? <laughs> Things can change. That's not necessarily bad. Yeah, I totally agree. And we know that things did change because we know what magic was like before the Golden Dawn. Now, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but we don't want to start a fight with the Golden Dawn. <laughs> they're they're cranky and they have a ton of props. It is true. It is true. There are a lot of wands to beat people with. Lots of wands. <laughs> and some of them are pointy. Um, yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, we, we can look back. Yeah, And this is something that, that I've reminded people of many times before. You know, uh, we can look back at the Greek magical papyri and we can see that the people who wrote who wrote about those amulets and like wrote down those images and stuff. They were among the worst artists in all of recorded history, like weird lumpy stick figures and things that like didn't make any sense when there was real art going on at the time. So it wasn't like they didn't know what art was. They were just sort of like, eh, the stick figure is good enough, you know? And, and we, and then nowadays like people, you know, modern occultists, you know, agonize over making their stuff as beautiful as possible and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, make a stick figure, give it a name. It's magic. You're, you're, you're good. <laughs> but I, I mean, and I don't know if that's always true. I don't know if that's how it always works, but it certainly seems to be how it did work at one point. Well, and certainly one of the questions that I, I often ask myself is to what extent is the efficacy, does the efficacy of magic hinge on the individual aesthetic sensibilities of the practitioner because i know there are oh. certainly some some practices some traditions uh you know some some uh paths that just do not resonate with me and mm -hmm. it's not my thing and there are some things that i'm like yeah that's my jam so those things that are not a draw uh, I do wonder to what extent those can still be efficacious for a person or to what extent it is a matter of needing to have that more affective, that more emotional component to it, which really depends on hooking your aesthetic sensibilities uh, and drawing those and you up with it. Right. God, that's a really good question. How much of the e efficacy of your magic is based on kind of like your own faith in that it will work and how much of that faith is influenced by how much the magic looks like what you think the magic should look like. 
Right. And yeah. one of the things that I've found, too, is that in, in doing magic, one of the biggest hurdles to overcome is just getting the hell out of your own way. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have that, that rational, critical faculty that will absolutely ruthlessly shut down anything that... Uh, that you you try to uh, get to in a in a magical capacity because this this work is so deeply intuitive it is so deeply personal and subjective for for the most part that uh, unless you can unless you can shut that voice inside your head off that says no this couldn't be happening that can't be real you know this this is silly this is stupid uh, and similarly I think in in you know if you are overly focused on the techniques that you're using or if you're overly focused on if you're feeling self-conscious about it if you're feeling uh too too uh distracted by the method uh to be in the moment then i think that's equally detrimental mm -hmm. yeah that makes me think of some of the experiences i've had with um scrying or drawing spirits into crystals or something like that where you know, being able to like enter into a trance state and maintain that trance state is is kind of vital. Absolutely, and very very difficult when it comes to you know if your if your mind isn't clear and if you don't shut that that mm -hmm. cognitive part down, it's extremely challenging. But even the experience itself can be sometimes like imaginal. I had this is this is, I guess is a very subjective sort of experience but one of the first successes I had I just remember at the time like staring into the I have two memories of it in one memory I'm kind of aware that I'm in a trance state and I'm staring into the crystal and I'm sort of like I don't even know if this is working and in another memory I'm imagining something in the crystal but when they combine the memory is of the thing actually being in the crystal you know so it's like you have to you do have to get out of your own way. You have to let, uh, you have to let like an unreality seep into reality almost, you know, the, the, you know, the leaving, leaving sort of like the material mindset and entering into a mindset of like accepting otherness and accepting, um, some sort of imaginal state of being, I guess. Absolutely, and and certainly my my uh, own experiences with the the drawing spirits into crystals method and the like has been uh, equally subjective and imaginal. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I think that whenever you are doing this kind of of work, um, you almost have to set aside that question of, you know, am I just making this up? And um, and recognize that you're engaging in this act of co-creation almost. Um, yeah. You know what? Actually, I think that even better would be to turn that question on its head, not be, am I just making this up? You should be like, oh, yeah, I'm making this up. You should be <laughs> kind of like celebrating that, right? Because it is co-creation. It is, you know, we, we, um, we diminish our own experience by calling it something that's by by saying, oh, I'm just making this up. The ability to make stuff up is the ability of gods. You know, it, creating things in our imagination is akin to creating things in the real world, right? As above, so below. Right. So, so recognizing our imagination's ability to perform those acts of creation and then, like, 
celebrating those acts of creation is kind of like, I think that's kind of one of those secrets. I think that's one of the, the keys. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, um, I think that you're completely on the, on the nose there. I've been doing this for a super long time too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I have as well. And you would think that this wouldn't be the case, but after, after 20 years of doing magic, uh, it's still, honestly, I have to pinch myself. It amazes me when it works. Oh, and, yeah, uh, same here, same here. Uh, there, there is always this, this. Uh, wait, this is real. <laughs> that, uh, that you know, no matter how much experience you get, no matter how uh, much exposure that you have, or uh, you know what you do, there's always when you have those moments of encounter and you really have those transformative experiences, it's always new. It's always for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I, I love so much about doing it. Oh, same here. Same here. Well, Nick, I think that's kind of a good place to wrap up our, our first chat. Like that was um, incredibly insightful. We covered like five different topics and many of them we tied back together uh, I really, I, I'm, I'm very impressed by the work you've done and the contributions you've, you've given to the community just through your Kabbalion article. Like, thank you so much. You, you've, uh, you've helped out the world of modern hermeticism immeasurably. And, um, you know, I think Hermes himself owes you, uh, I don't know, a healthy pat on the back and a ginormous paycheck or something like whatever, however that works. <laughs> Well, well, thank you so much. I am, I am officially flattered. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners uh, where to find you? Like, you know, on GitHub. <laughs> uh, I, I have, I have perhaps the the uh, world's most poorly maintained blog at hermeticulture.org. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to write a bit more. I have, uh, I had a dry spell for about five years oh, so you know, uh, it happens you know it does it happens to the best of us so i'm uh i'm trying to get back into writing and uh uh kind of using that more therapeutically during these uh these pandemic times mm -hmm. yep i understand uh and no social media then uh, I am on social media. You can find me as Nicholas Chapela on Facebook. Uh, and uh, I actually also run the uh, Facebook group, uh, Twin Cities Ceremonial Magic Discussion Group. Uh, Ooh, that sounds at, like a good one. Yes, we, we meet locally, at least in normal times, and we'll probably be resuming uh, local meetings again here in Minneapolis uh, in the near future. So if you are in the area, please stop in and say hi. Well, I will make sure that there are links to your blog and your um, Facebook group in the show notes. Uh, and I just I want to thank you again for reaching out. Like this was such a such a treat to get to put a a face to the to the name. Well, thank you so much. the The pleasure truly was mine. It's been uh, great to chat with you. And we've we've definitely like cracked open some really fascinating topics here. So uh, when you're ready to come back on, I'm ready to dive into any one of these again just say the word thank you for listening to the arnamancy podcast you can find me online at arnamancy.com where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the arnamancy blog you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher spotify or your favorite podcatcher if you like this podcast support it for just one dollar a month through patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy 